Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, ENDS Report. I'm Shasha Aidy, a reporter at ENDS, and today I'll be filling in for our usual host, James, who's off in the wilderness filming for an exciting new project. Today we'll be unpacking the latest cabinet reshuffle, which saw Coffee Out and Barclay in, sharing news on an EA Big Shots shock departure, and look at how council workers ended up in jail after a scandal involving skips. For the deep dive, we've got the inside scoop on how the National Farmers Union lobbied DEFRA to lower its global air quality ambitions on a dangerous pollutant. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber! For our Big Green News section, I'm joined by ENDS editor Jamie Carpenter and Features editor Tess Colley, and we have a lot on for you today. On Monday, Sunak carried out his second cabinet reshuffle this year, and there were a few unexpected changes. Jamie, can you walk us through some of those bombshells that were dropped at the cabinet reshuffle? Um, so, I mean, there was no, no surprises around Swella Braverman being sacked as Home Secretary. She obviously um, said some some stuff around rough sleeping being the right lifestyle choice and... and um, how, talking about how police were playing favourites when it came to policing pr- protesters, um, so that didn't come as a surprise. I think what, what's the, the the most interesting thing for our readers was the departure of Therese Coffey as Environment Secretary. We just published a story about her first year as um, Environment Secretary and what, what she had or had not achieved. Um, so she's she's gone and she resigned. Um, so she wrote this up. Resigning rather than being sacked. So, um, she was in there being... for a long time, though. She was two hours. Two hours, yeah. And she stroked the, Larry the cat on the way in. <laughs> I know. And, uh, yeah. There was thought, a lot yeah. of um, speculation in the ends office. I think there was speculation was uh, running running high, definitely. Um, so, so coffee's gone. Um, Steve Barkley has stepped into her shoes, um, and amazingly, he becomes the seventh Secretary of State for DEFRA since Brexit. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I won't ask you to name them all because I, I tried earlier <laughs> and I, I, I wasn't able to myself, which is slightly um, embarrassing. Um, I think another, and just another point on that, I think it's interesting that um, his move from health to DEFRA is seen as a demotion, which is um, slightly disappointing, really, given how important environmental issues are. So... Those those were the kind of the big headlines. I mean, there, there, there were other other changes. So um, Victoria Atkins, who some people tip for Defra, was now moved back to move over to health to take Barclays' former brief. Um, there, there were some moves and sackings sort of further down the ministerial um, ladder, if that's a thing. Um, so Housing Minister Rachel McLean has was sacked. Um, uh, she, she she was at the Conservative Party conference talking talking about neutrality rules and calling for them to be scrapped, um, and she's been replaced by Lee Rowley, who was previously a Housing Minister briefly during Liz Truss's spell as Prime Minister. And um, if you thought it was bad at DEFRA in terms of the number of Secretary of States, he is actually the sixteenth oh. Planning and Housing Minister since twenty ten. Mm. So, yeah, and I definitely can't name all of those. Um, so and and just just one more thing to flag is just um, the the big headline grabbing move was was David Cameron um, coming back from the political wilderness or his caravan where he was 
Well, his memoirs. Um, so he's foreign secretary. Shepherd's heart, Jamie. Shepherd's, Shepherd's heart. heart. Yeah, sorry. No, he's from the shepherd's <laughs> yeah, it's too classy to be in a caravan. That's, that's my my summer holidays. Um, um, so he's he's taking on the foreign secretary role, um, replacing James Cleverly, who has now taken on Braverman. So keep up. I need to keep up. Um, it's a full circle moment. Full now. circle. We'll come back yeah, to yeah, the exactly. <laughs> yes. So. Um, and just on, yeah, David Cameron's move is, is potentially interesting. Although although it's foreign secretary, he'll probably have to go to COP twenty eight when that that is um, that's on in a just a few weeks time now. Um, and I mean, it, when when he was premier and leader of Tory party, he did. He, I, I guess you could say his his track record was quite quite mixed on environmental and climate stuff. So he did talk a good game on these things initially, and then and then it kind of all went a bit awry after he. Apparently wanted to get rid of all the green crap, although that's um, not yes. everyone says that he actually did say that. Going back to Therese Coffey, then, who's maybe our more interesting um, one for ends, was there more of an indication as to why she resigned? Well, not really. No, I mean, I think I think ahead of the when when it looked like the reshuffle was on the cards over the weekend, people were kind of tipping her to be to be sacked. So I don't I don't think there's any surprise that she's not not a minister anymore. I think I think there was a lot of um, she clearly was under a lot of pressure over over sewage and um perhaps that's that's sort of the where kind of Labour and Lib Dems are, are kind of making a lot of political capital out of that stuff. Yeah. Um the speculation uh, I heard was that she was offered a much more junior minister role and obviously didn't want to take it, perhaps why she was in there for so long, having a bit of argy bargy. But um you know, everyone's sort of reading the coffee runes at this point. And now she's old news. She's gone. Yeah. Coffee who? Coffee. <laughs> exactly. For now. I can imagine her making a comeback. <laughs> yeah. I, lo- I love all the stuff around whether, whether someone's been sacked or resigned. And, and I think the um, there was something around Suella Braverman where, where it was like she was she like, um, it was almost like Rishi Sunak had asked her to resign and she she accepted. It's like, well, if, you, if, you're, if you're sacked, how do you accept that? You're either sacked or you're not. Yeah. Maybe I'm just old fashioned on, on these things. Um, so, but but Therese Coffey. So in, she she wrote a resignation letter to Sunak, Rishi Sunak, and and he wrote back, and they're, they're available to look at on the government's website. So she 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 said that she considers it now now is the right time to step back from government, and um, she looks forward to supporting Rishi from the the backbenches and working together for a conservative majority in that selection, which um, is wishful thinking maybe. Um, <laughs> And I think I think the the other thing that's interesting around this is is the kind of um, I guess the coffee legacy. So in in Sunet's letter, he he thanked Cof- Therese Coffee for her years of dedicated ministerial service and friendship to me personally, um, not me, Rishi <laughs> <laughs> Um She's worked hard to deliver for our rural communities. Um, she's been a consistent champion of better rural broadband. Um, and her support for a moratorium on deep sea mining is a powerful example of UK leadership in this field. These are quite so. positive words from him, then, really. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's not. It's not um, packed full of achievements, I think. But um, I guess if you're, you're you're kind of being charitable, you, you might you might say that um, she was kind of dealt a bad hand when she started because there was this, this massive culture of delay at Defra, which she did initially she did kind mm. of break the log log jam a little bit initially she caught the, up on the statutory, the statutory missed stuff. deadlines yeah exactly yes. um and so maybe then on the topic of being dealt a, 
a bad hand. Who's who's coming in to replace her? <laughs> Steve Barkley. Um, well, I suppose it depends on your point of view, whether or not he's been dealt a bad hand. A lot of people in the, uh, I guess, the, the political commentariat obviously see DEFRA as quite a low uh, kind of status department to be moved into. And this is a demotion, uh, supposedly. But nonetheless, uh, Barkley you know, tweeted out that he was welcoming his his new role. Uh, he hasn't got really any parliamentary experience on the environmental brief, um, as far as I've certainly been able to find. He has got he has shown an interest over the last few years uh, in rural issues. He's a patron of the Conservative Rural Forum, and uh, he joined an invited audience as a guest of honour at the most recent Tory party conference uh, at a reception hosted by the Countryside Alliance. Uh, and he kind of talked about representing rural communities and the issues there and how it's important and it's still part of the conservative values of freedom of choice and opportunity that's what motivates him uh and then giving kind of a stab at labor he in that reception it's reported that he said uh labor is a party that is in hock to the ngos a whole host of ngos that will shape labor's approach to rural issues uh so maybe a little indication of what his view is towards ngos there um so that's that's well, he's, that's the experience he's he's coming in at. I did have a, a bit more of a, a route around and uh, we found out that uh, his wife holds a senior position at Anglian Water, which is an interesting, interesting. Um, fact. That's raised some eyebrows among campaigners, as you can probably imagine. Um, she's her role. She's a, she's head of major infrastructure, DCO planning and stakeholder engagement, Anglian Water. Um, I mean, Defra, you know, when when we raised this to them, asking if this was a conflict of interest at all, uh, they said all deaf ministers declare their interests in line with the ministerial code. Um, but I don't think that's yeah. Ash Smith, who's the founder of uh, the campaign group Windrush Against Sewage Pollution, he posed the question to us like, should we worry that the man who is supposed to control the industry and the regulators has a vested interest in the success of one of the companies? Um, Interesting question to ponder on. Uh, a DEFRA spokesperson said, there is an established regime in place for the declaration and management of interests held by ministers. This ensures that steps are taken to avoid or mitigate any potential or perceived conflicts of interest. So nothing to see here. It'll be interesting to see if um, Steve Barclay does address this himself in the coming days. Maybe one, one to watch. Yes, possibly. I think he's generally seen as a safe pair of hands politically. I think that's his sort of reputation within... Government women in a, uh, I read a 2022 profile of him that The Guardian did, and he's described as one of those ministers who are rarely lauded, but nonetheless greatly valued by a prime minister, hardworking, loyal, and most of all, largely uncomplaining. Um, Interesting. That's pretty good praise, I suppose. That's sort of what you want to hear from your colleagues. It's what you, I suppose, it's what you want to hear from your colleagues. But um, in terms of will he be a good DEFRA secretary, there's a lot of issues. Obviously, the sewage uh, scandal is going to be a huge political uh, issue coming up to the election. It's kind of got under the skin of a lot of, I think, the public at large, and it's often a big thing on in local areas. Uh, there's a river everywhere, and people are irate about all the sewage everywhere. Um, so he he's got a nasty like task there from his point of view. I would say. Yeah, it's interesting when when Labour. So we were talking earlier about there being two Steves now. Mm. So Steve Reid for <laughs> Labour and. Steve Barkley for the Tories, but the I think Steve Reid is seen as a being a his appointment him him being a bit of an attack dog. Yeah. So so to what extent this is a response to that. Um I also thought it's interesting that, that Steve Barkley is not a member of the Conservative Environment Network because 
there must be very, very few Conservative MPs who aren't a member now. They've yeah, so 150 in the Parliamentary Caucus was a lot. And uh, I mean, Therese Coffey, she was in, she was a member of the Sen Caucus, as was George Eustace. Um, Ranul Jai Ward, you know, wasn't, but he was only Deputy Secretary for about two seconds. So, <laughs> you know, um, there we go. He wasn't particularly well liked as a Deputy Secretary, as I recall. But as I say, it was a blip in the memory. Um, we'll see yeah. then if Steve Barclay suddenly joins. That might be one for us to watch as well. And um, I see that there's also been a new DEFRA minister appointed as well. Mm. Yes, Robbie Moore. He's a former rural surveyor who advised on agri-environmental stewardship agreements. Uh, but he's also um, sits on the EFRA committee, the Environment, Farming and Rural Affairs Committee. Um, we don't yet know what his portfolio is, certainly at the time of recording, um, but he has, like, as you know, as a member of that committee, he's often shown himself to be keen to challenge water companies and uh, has got a great interest in regenerative farming. He's always posing questions on the environmental land management schemes. Um, so that he he could be interesting to watch. I mean, the fact he has got this kind of record on, you know, really not liking uh, the water companies polluting does suggest is, is, is Sunak thinking about that election and wanting someone in there who he can point to saying like look we are taking on the water companies um but yes we don't know what his actual brief is yet that'll be an interesting one to watch as well um i've also seen that he's sort of towed the line on some of the party issues concerning ULES and um other clean air zones is that right yeah yeah he um has taken the party line on that his, his interest definitely seems to be on the rural side of things rural mm. affairs um, so I suppose it's not too much of a surprise that he would on on air quality and new les that sort of thing. He's not as um, engaged. So moving on to our second story, then it's not just been curtains for coffee. ENS understands that Environment Agency Executive Director for Local Operations, John Curtin, has also recently left his post. So Curtin was one of the EA's big hitters that sort of joined right when it was formed in 1996, filled in for James Bevan as Interim Chief Executive earlier this year, and he even was brave enough to come in and guest on this podcast. So Tess, do we know what has happened? Um, well, not exactly. We don't. The reasons for his sudden departure are not clear at the moment. Uh, but what we do know is um, that environment agency staff were told in a very short email sent from uh, Philip Duffy, who's the new environment agency boss, that Curtin's leaving. And we know this because we've seen the email. Uh, and it said, John Curtin, Executive Director of Operations, will be leaving the EA. We thank him for his 32 year service. It said that Chief Operating Officer Sarah Shah has been asked to step into his role from the 14th of November, while the agency advertises for a replacement as soon as possible. Um, so that's that's what we know. It just um, it's it's quite sudden, from what we understand. Yes, and I understand that um, two of his well, two other directors at the EA have been filling in his position for the past few weeks. So it's not a sort of um, a, a new departure. He hasn't just left. He's been out of the role for a bit but it's it's quite well it's news to us really isn't it um do we know what some of his colleagues thought about it well yeah i mean speaking to ends on the condition of anonymity one internal source uh told our news editor uh pippineal that it was very strange that someone uh that they described as being a cornerstone of the organization could just and i now i quote disappear with so little recognition of everything that he has achieved um the quote continued, we've seen lesser people leave the organisation with much more fanfare than that. 
somebody said to me that it makes everybody feel expendable, that if somebody after 32 years can just go like that, then clearly the rest of us don't mean much, um, is what they said. So it's been noted internally as a bit odd, 32 years service. Normally you would hear something about a colleague who's, who's done that long. Um, Curtin, yeah, he, he briefly was uh, interim chief exec earlier this year. Who knows what's what's going on? I thought it was really interesting when he was interim chief executive how the the approach that he took was very very different to to James Bevan, the the, the previous chief exec. So he was very mm. kind of open and positive about about the EA's yeah. role and presented it in a in a different light. So it's um, all about transparency. And he was. I think we sort of mentioned this a little bit more in the podcast episode that he was on, which is episode forty nine. If anyone wants to go back and listen to it, but on his Twitter, you know, he was always sharing stuff that. The environment agency was up to whether that was testing bathing water sites for pig DNA or you know regulating coma sites and I think he even was very hands-on and went and visited those places so to not hear anything about why he's departed and and he hasn't responded to our request for comment either is going to raise some questions I think I mean what have the EA said in response They've not said a lot. When we asked, they reiterated that they'd like to thank John Curtin for his service and repeated, you know, what we already know about Sarah Shah being acting exec director of operations. Um, so yes, again, nothing, nothing to see here. I think the other thing to say about this that's interesting is um, is that the new chief executive Philip Duffy has has kept a really low profile since um, since he joined in the summer. So I think we're still kind of really waiting for for him to sort of speak publicly about about his his priorities for for the regulator under, under his leadership so i think that's um that's something that we'll be keeping a close eye on over the over the next few weeks and months yes and if duffy would like to come onto the eco chamber podcast he is extremely welcome let's just put that out there <laughs> our door is always open isn't it's it? it's always open <laughs> so moving on to our last story of the week five men have found themselves on the wrong side of the law after dodgy dealings at a waste site that involved Cardiff Council workers. Jamie, could you walk me through this scandalous story? I, I can try. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story and it could, it feels like, um, it's like a, a, a movie or some kind of gritty crime <laughs> drama or something. So, so as you say that there, um, these five men are facing jail and, and, and this, this, this is a following an investigation into, Corrupt activity at a waste management facility run by Cardiff Council, um, and th- these convictions, which are under the Bribery Act, follow an investigation which which started in 2017, which was when a, a council whistleblower flagged issues within the waste management division at the Bessemer Close Commercial Recycling Centre. And what this hinges on is is 54 year old Warren Roberts, who was a controller of the waste disposal company ANT Waste Management. He was found to be paying bribes to the council staff to misrepresent the type or amount of waste being deposited at the site in order to reduce the tipping fees. Um, and on the day of his arrest, around £40,000 in cash was recovered from Roberts's home address, according to South Wales Police, and further cash was seized from the other defendants' home addresses. So quite a lot to digest there. I'm sat on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, um, it's gripping stuff. So... so um, Warren Roberts was sentenced to the longest jail term, 28 months imprisonment. Other men that were convicted included a weekend supervisor of the waste site, an agency worker, someone who worked for the council on the Weybridge, and a council skip sorter. And three of them, including Roberts, were sent straight to jail, don't pass go, um, and two got suspended sentences. Um, and 
talking about this, a South Wales police detective constable said that the five men showed staggering levels of dishonesty in exploiting their positions of trust to deprive Cardiff Council of significant income. Wow, it almost sounds like a Channel 4 documentary. I wonder if we will see one in the future. Um, how, how big were these losses then to the council? Significant. So the, these crimes apparently resulted in losses of around £417,000 to the council. Wow, that, that is significant. It um, is. And what did they say about what had happened? Um, the council described this as a serious fraud and said in quotes, the council had alerted the police and done everything it could to aid the investigation. Um, they also said that in addition to strengthening internal controls, the council will carry out a post-trial review led by the Corporate Director of Resources with any recommendations for preventing fraud reported to the Council Governance and Audit Committee and acted on. Give it a couple of years for the uh, TV schedules to catch up. I'm sure we'll be something, something soon about that. I would watch that. <laughs> So after some serious stories, it's time to lighten things up with our moment of the week. We thought to commemorate Coffee's time at DEFRA, which has been eventful to say the least, um, we dedicate this section to some of her more memorable moments in the role. Who wants to start us off? Well, I think one of my favourite moments with Coffee was at the National Farmers Union earlier this year. Um, she just seemed to turn up and not really like farmers very much. Um, and she, yeah, she gave a very, I don't know, she, she had this Q&A with the President Manette Batters, sort of chided Manette Batters for running the conference a bit late. Um, and and then she started talking about, there was there were egg kind of issues with, with, with poultry and eggs at the time, partly due to the avian uh, flu, but other factors as well. Um, and she kind of said it was down to market failures and, you know, government, nothing to see here. And she got booed by the farmers. And this is a, this is a Tory secretary of state getting booed by the National Farmers Union Conference. Uh, and it stood in stark contrast to Kastama, who's, who's actually very well received. And I think everyone was a bit skeptical about what you would say. But yeah, her getting booed and then subsequently getting asked about it in select committee. Um, and then kind of, that the one of the the main uh, farming trade magazines wrote a scathing editorial about her, and she's just like I haven't, don't, I don't read that title. She said, um, so um, that, that whole period was was great for me. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Certainly had some laughs in the office. I think as as we were saying that there's 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 just so many to pick from. I mean, I, I quite enjoyed recently the um, select committee appearance where where she kind of blamed the floods on the rain coming from the wrong direction. It was quite quite good but oh, oh yeah that one was I think, I think embarrassing. it was quite good but I think personally I think the when when I was at the Conservative Party conference and had the the privilege of being in the hall while half empty hall while she talked about green zealots and bendy bananas was something that's going to kind of live with me for quite quite a long time before we you know finish I feel we have to give a moment to the turnip moment in history uh where coffee caused a bit of a furore when she suggested that people should cherish uh, food such as turnips, seasonal veg, um, as kind of bad weather was causing kind of shortages and other things like tomatoes and that sort of thing. She said, it's important to make sure that we cherish the specialisms that we have in this country. Uh, a lot of people would be eating turnips right now rather than thinking necessarily about aspects of lettuce and tomatoes and similar um aspects of lettuce. I didn't know what's an aspect <laughs> of a lettuce. Anyway, um, but yeah, so thinking of cherishing turnips, that's the, what I want to... Leave this Taking on. away from that, rather yeah. than the aspects of lettuce. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
So that's it for the big green news section, but I promise you want to stay tuned as it is soon time for our deep dive. Just a quick note before then, um, ENDS is hosting a live webinar um, soon on biodiversity and net gain, which you should definitely tune into. You can sign up now on the website. Uh, let's go to endsreport.com. Uh, we're going to be looking at biodiversity net gain and talking to experts like Nick White from Natural England and developers and others uh, to see, you know, this big change in policies coming. What's it going to mean? Uh, is anyone ready for it? Will it actually destroy the environment after all? We don't know. Let's find out. Join the webinar on the 13th of December at 3pm. Uh, if you don't have a subscription, you can take out a free trial. Um, sign up. Time for our deep dive. I'm N's Features Editor, Tess Colley, and I've got News Editor Pippa Neal here to talk about a story exclusive to N's. It reveals how the National Farmers Union lobbied the government to lower its international air quality targets, specifically on ammonia. It's really interesting to tell this. Um, Pippa, first off, could you just explain some of the background to these air quality targets which have been changed? Yeah. In February, we reported that DEFRA had submitted an inventory adjustment to the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, which basically allowed it to remove non-manure digestate, which, for those who aren't familiar, (laughs) is a nutrient-rich substance which is produced from anaerobic digestion, which produces biogas. So it's basically kind of a biofuel and the digestate is the byproduct. Um, and the adjustment basically allowed DEFRA to remove this um, non-manure digestate um, as a source of ammonia pollution in its internationally legally binding emission reduction commitments. Um, And at the time when we reported on this, um, lawyers warned that the adjustment basically just undermines the whole purpose of the regulations because it basically allows DEFRA to, in effect, artificially inflate its progress on reducing pollution Mm. by basically reducing a source from the inventory. Right. Okay, then. So for anyone who's not, you know, particularly au fait with ammonia, why is it such a big concern as opposed to any other kinds of, you know, air pollution Mm -hmm. sources? So ammonia, when it mixes with other gases in the atmosphere, such as nitrogen dioxide and sulfur dioxide, it can form particulate matter, which for anyone that's kind of familiar with air quality um, issues will know that it's one of the most dangerous pollutants to human health. Um, responsible for 29,000 premature deaths in the UK every single year. So it's a big issue and ammonia is kind of part of that problem. Ammonia pollution largely comes from farms. So I think it's according to the latest DEFRA stats, it's like 87% of total ammonia emissions come from agriculture. Um, And so you might think that, you know, this is an issue that's, you know, specific to pollution around farms, for example, but it's not. Um, According to a peer-reviewed study by researchers at University College London, agriculture actually contributed to 38% of the particle pollution in Leicester, 32% in Birmingham, and 25% in London. That's crazy because these are big cities and we're Mm. talking about agricultural pollution. Yeah, exactly. And levels of ammonia pollution from non-manure digestate have actually been increasing in recent years, jumping from zero kilotons in 1990 to 13.2 kilotons in 2021. And this is kind of because DEFRA is emphasising that this process, this anaerobic digestion, is a useful way for agriculture to reach net zero by producing this biogas and also by kind of helping us to deal with food waste. Um, although it's a whole nother issue that we won't necessarily get into, but kind of the speculation about the actual benefits of this fuel in terms of helping us reach net zero. There's, um, mm. I know Feedback, for example, have kind of said that 
actually some of the net zero benefits have been overstated. But yeah, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. So we've established that basically ammonia pollution is really serious for both human and environmental health and that agriculture is a principal source and that uh, the emissions, ammonia emissions from manure, non-manure digestate are going up rather than down. That's quite a lot. But what you found now is that the NFU, the National Farmers Union, has been pushing maybe for things not to be so hard on them. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly it, basically. Um, so when this kind of dig- this adjustment was per- first like published and put forward, it did raise a few eyebrows. Like I said, lawyers kind of said, you know, that this undermines the whole purpose of the regulations and it was all a bit strange. You were thinking like, how did we, how did this happen? Um, and in email correspondence, which um, I've received via freedom of information request, in May 2022, which was before the government launched its consultation on its plans of how it was going to reach these emission reduction targets, um, Dr. Bill Parrish, who is a deputy director of air quality and industrial emissions at DEFRA, emailed the NFU to say, you know, we're going to be launching this consultation shortly on our plans. Um, and he said, which is quite an interesting line, we are not on the right trajectory to achieve our emission ceilings for some of our key pollutants, particularly ammonia. The key risk we are managing is it is unlikely, whatever we do, that we will meet our ceilings with the current list of measures. We plan to be upfront about this but not to put farming in a negative spotlight. Well, there you have it. Um, and he went on to say that we, we do not propose to put forward a list of disproportionate measures to meet the ceiling, but he said, we will need to strike a balance in demonstrating best endeavours to help de-risk legal challenge, which we anticipate from certain legal groups later this year. So again, um, quite a quite a revealing line, I, mm. I would say. Yeah, what happened next? So after this email, Dr. Parrish went on to invite the NFU in for a meeting at the DEFRA offices to run through a list of possible measures. After this, kind of our knowledge of what actually happened in this meeting is is blank. Um, so there's a bit of a bit of a gap here. But ultimately, DEFRA then put forward its draft plan for consultation, and it didn't have any further measures to reduce ammonia emissions. But rather, they had suggested they would remove this source of pollution, this non-manure digestate, from the emissions inventory. Okay, I mean that's that's quite a lot. It basically, what we're seeing is because it was always interesting about lobbying to me is that everyone knows that everyone does it. Everyone's you know each group who has any kind of interest in anything is always trying to make something else happen. Um, but you don't always see how it happens, and mm. when it's on something as important as air pollution, air quality, like this, these emails show just how, I don't know, it feels like you've, you've lifted the veil a bit on, on how things work. Mm. Um, Did you have any other sort of material? Yeah. So after all these email correspondence, DEFRA put out its plans for consultation um, and I've received the consultation responses. um, And in one, NFU and the National Pig Association kind of strongly pushed for this um, adjustment to be kind of put forward. They said, while agriculture is the dominant source of ammonia emissions, we believe that there is a strong case for better addressing emissions from other sources, particularly road transport, which you might think, well, yeah, fair enough. We should also be tackling road transport, which of course we should. But in this context, in 2021, road transport was responsible for just 2% of ammonia emissions, down from 4% in 2011. Mm. Meanwhile, agriculture was responsible for 87%, and that's kind of on an upward 
trend in the past few years. In a separate consultation response, NFU Cymru said that the attribution of anaerobic digestate emissions to the inventory was inappropriate. And they said that they supported the inventory adjustment to discount emissions from non-manual digestate. They said that the majority of farm businesses are small or medium size and do not have the level of capital or resources available to them to ensure that they comply with ever increasing levels of complex regulations. Mm, okay. um, and after all of this, in a later email in August 2022, the NFU contacted DEFRA again and said, you know, is there any update with this adjustment? They asked, is there anything we can do, the NFU or wider industry, to support the application? The next day, Dr. Parrish replied and said the department was hopeful the adjustment would be accepted by the commission. And then on the 22nd of September, the NFU emailed DEFRA again, asking, you know, has this adjustment been accepted? And asked for clarity on, in quotes, how much more wiggle room that will give industry. Later that day, DEFRA confirmed to the NFU that the adjustment had indeed been accepted and that while projections change each year, it will bring the UK around 21 kilotons closer to the emission reduction commitment for 2030. I should add here that Dr Parrish maintained that obviously the negative impacts of ammonia on human health and the environment are the same regardless of this adjustment. So, <laughs> good you for know, it to be pointed out. Yeah, good for it to be pointed out. But for many people, the kind of their response is just you've not removed the source of the pollution, but you've removed the legal accountability. And that basically yeah. isn't fair. Just writing it down in an email that obviously we know this doesn't really stop people's Mm. health or the environment declining because of it. Um, So how have people reacted? Have you run it past your various kind of sources? So um, I shared the documents with George Monbiot, who I'm sure listeners of the Eco Chamber will know is the kind of world-renowned author, journalist, campaigner. Um, And he said that the documents are evidence that the relationship between DEFRA and the NFU is so close it amounts to regulatory capture. The NFU, to a large extent, sets DEFRA policy, and that goes against all the principles of good governance, he told me. He also said that while all polluting industries, to some extent, are being let off the hook by this government by one degree or another, but that farming has a special dispensation. He said there's a moral force field around it, which means that neither ministers nor the people that should be holding the industry to account are prepared to apply the same standards as they do to other industrial sectors. He said, what you, have, what you have unearthed here is very powerful evidence of that moral force field in operation. Wow, it's pretty pretty strong strong words from mm. Monbiot. He's, he's written a lot about, about farming and certainly in the last, last year or so. Mm. Um, did he, I mean, I imagine he had something to say on that relationship between them being pretty... Yeah, he, he, yeah, he had some, as you, as you can expect for anyone that's familiar with his, with his writing or, or work, um, he did have some pretty strong opinions. Like he, he described it as evidence of just basically the relationship being completely corrupt. He said specifically that the language suggests that the role of the regulator is to make things as easy as possible for the regulated industry, even if that involves breaking our obligations and in fact, potentially putting the government outside of the law. Blimey. What did Defra say to that? Yeah, so obviously they, when I put these quotes to them, they they obviously weren't too happy to be kind of alleged as having a corrupt relationship with the farming body. Um, and they outright denied this. They said, we deny these spurious allegations. Um, and they emphasised that adjustments to emissions inventories are permitted under UK law and said, you know, in this case, we made an application because the agreed target had not taken into account non-manure digestate. 
and that the application was subsequently approved to, by an independent committee. Um, they said this government has delivered significant reductions in emissions since 2010, and our environmental improvement plan sets out several commitments to deliver this, which are now being developed alongside environmental and farming groups. We make no apology for working closely with the NFU and other farming groups, given their role representing British agriculture. Mm -hmm. We make no apology. Well, there we go. The only few themselves, did they, were they as strong in what they had to say? Yeah, so I heard back from the NFU Environment Forum Chair, Richard Bramley, who he, he just emphasised that British farmers do care about air quality and said there's already been significant improvements to reduce ammonia emissions on farms through good practice in managing soils, manure, fertiliser and feed. However, he said, we recognise that further reductions are required in order to meet the level of ambition set in the government's clean air strategy. Um, he said that the NFU will continue to lobby government to ensure future farming schemes enable farmers to invest in the new technology and infrastructure needed um, and crucially improve air quality as part of protecting the environment. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, when you, you kind of see one thing like this, where you see how... Um, a certain change was made or who called for what and maybe what pressures were put on policymakers um, to do X, Y or Z makes you think what else what else is happening at the moment that we, mm. we don't know, yet know about. Um, that had made me think that at the end of this year, is it not right that DEFRA, or, you know, or the country, we're going to be scrapping regulations 9 and 10 of, of uh, the National Emissions Ceilings Regulations, which, you know, determine other bits of air-related uh, uh, law um, mm. using the, you know, the Retained EU Law Act. Yeah. Um, is that is that of, of concern as well? Like, are we going to see another sort of drop in standards elsewhere? Mm. So, yeah, so these national emission ceiling regulations, these um, are an EU retained law um, and they set these emission reductions targets that we've been talking about that kind of DEFRA has to, has to reach at certain periods. Um, and at the end of this year, DEFRA will use the controversial retained EU law bill, which we've talked a lot about before, um, to scrap regulations nine and 10 from these national emission ceiling regulations. Mm, what um, will that mean? So regulation nine requires that the Secretary of State prepare and implement a national air pollution control plan in accordance with these commitments. So that's kind of the plan that was consulted on that we've been talking about here. And regulation 10 requires that before preparing or significantly revising this plan, the Secretary of State must consult the public. So basically the concerns amongst green groups and also I should note the government's own environmental regulator, the Office for Environmental Protection, is that by scrapping these regulations, it basically reduces accountability and right. also kind of transparency because we're not able to understand the government's workings. So once these regulations are scrapped, we wouldn't have been able to kind of see the government wouldn't have, wouldn't have consulted publicly on its plans of how it's going to meet these targets. I wouldn't have been able to obtain this information because it wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't have been a consultation for me to obtain the consultation responses from. Right. Um, so kind of commenting on this, because Client Earth have been working a lot on these, these laws. They're particularly concerned about the fact that these two regulations are just going to be scrapped by the end of the year. Um, Katie Neald, who's a clean air lawyer at Client Earth, told me that this adjustment that we've been talking about and the fact that these two law, two regulations will be scrapped kind of just says, you know, she said it just shows the government clearly isn't interested in accountability against its legal commitments. All of these moves are suggesting that they just want to wriggle out of accountability to the greatest degree possible rather than stepping up ambition, she said. 
there you have it and we will be keeping an eye on those laws thank you to jamie tess and pippa and thank you to all of those that have stayed tuned right to the end of this episode we're always looking for feedback so do get in touch if you have notes uh, we're also on twitter linkedin and all the usual social media suspects Again, don't forget to sign up for our B&G webinar. We have a month's free trial you can use if you want to try out some of our exclusive content before deciding if you want to commit. Right, that's enough of me. Until next time.